Well, there's no, there's no great way to follow a video like that. You will always finish in second place, but I'm going to send our first through fourth graders, fifth day, fifth stage back, fifth grade backstagers to our O kids. And, uh, they're going to have a great time there. Uh, we've, uh, we've already had such a wonderful morning with new members and that great video of some of these kids. Uh, but we, we turn to the sermon and, um, we will, we will try to keep up with such uh, passion and excitement that they had. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand uh, out of respect for God's word? And I'm going to read our scripture passage on which our sermon's based today. Uh, you can follow along as I read from the Gospel of Luke. Friends, these words are utterly true and given to us in love. It reads this way. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him some sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to say hi uh, to everyone here on campus. Uh, those joining us online, it's great to have you with us today. Uh, if you're new with us today, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am really glad that you were here. We've we are, uh, you picked a great day to join us, Palm Sunday. Uh, we're closing out our sermon series called Unrelenting Rescue, where we have been journeying with Jesus through the season of Lent and these various encounters that he has had with people along the way uh, in his journey to the cross to save sinners by grace. And uh, I want to invite you back next Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday. It's going to be a great Sunday together. Uh, I'd encourage you to invite a friend or a coworker or a neighbor, someone in your life who is in need of a message of hope this season. It's going to be a great Sunday together. Today, we find ourselves on Palm Sunday, but our encounter is us looking at Jesus while he is on the cross. And this is a very interesting passage. Uh, it's a conversation uh, between three men, Jesus and these two other thieves, as they are on the cross. They're dying together. In this moment, it's a very interesting passage. And they're carrying on a conversation with one another in their darkest hours. They're carrying on a conversation in their deepest pain and grief. Now, I know that none of us have experienced crucifixion, but we may find ourselves this morning in a dark hour. Uh, we may find ourselves in a season of deep pain. Uh, we, may, we may find ourselves in a place of affliction. Uh, a feeling of as if we've been cut off and longing for answers in the fog of experience. Maybe that's you this morning. Well, this encounter with Jesus today is him with these two thieves, and they are experiencing that same heartache, that same pain, that same longing 
to be able to see through the fog of experience. And so if that is you this morning, I invite you to lean into this conversation uh, between these men and for what God would have us to hear. Three questions that we must answer if we want to make sense of life. What do we typically say? What do we struggle to admit? And finally, what is truly offered? Let's look first at what do we typically say? What do we typically say? And what we find in our passage is this encounter with this first thief. We find in him what we typically say in these kinds of situations, this kind of pain, this kind of longing. Look at what it says in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Our passage tells us that Jesus is on the cross in the middle of these two thieves and this thief cries out to Jesus for him to fix this issue that he finds himself in. And I hope this morning that we would not be too quick to judge this criminal, uh, the, the life, the excruciating circumstances that he faced as he hung on a cross. First, the sheer physical pain of crucifixion. You may not know this, but crucifixion was the chosen execution practice of the Roman empire. And the reason that it was chosen was because it was slow and it was an agonizing death. They didn't want, want a practice that ended too quickly. Based on how long your floggings took place before crucifixion, you could last up to several days on a cross. Cicero, the Roman statesman, described crucifixion as, quote, the most cruel and horrifying of punishment, end quote. There were no major arteries or organs destroyed during crucifixion. And so the natural way that you would die was either by suffocation that you would constantly be having to pick yourself up. You would die by dehydration that you were hanging for so many days without water or that you would die by heart failure or a combination of the both. Plain and simple, crucifixion was a brutal way to die and the Romans knew it. They put it on display for all to see. And that leads us to the second reason this was so excruciating. It wasn't just physical pain, it was psychological pain. Death by crucifixion did not happen in a dark alleyway. It happened in front of the crowds. It was one thing to agonize over just the sheer physical pain and exhaustion of several days hanging on a cross, but it was another thing that your honor, your reputation were completely stripped of you as you hung there. From some of the old hymns, we get a picture that, 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 that this, this cross was up on a hill far away. Uh, is that Jesus up there? I can't really tell. This is what we get from some of our old hymns. This is the depiction we have in the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, and it, and it goes like this. I won't sing it for you this morning for your sake, but I will read it to you. It says this, on a hill far away, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. On a hill far away. Is that, is that Jesus up there? The actual historical depiction was quite different. You have to remember, this is the Roman Empire who's in charge of this. And they are wanting to show you that they are in power. That you were the subjects. And the empire wanted you to know that this is what happens to you when you go against their rule. Quintilian was a Roman educator from the first century. And this is what he said talking about the crucifixion. Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. Men were actually stripped naked rather than on a hill far away. As the song suggests, victims were usually executed at eye level as you entered and exited the city as a reminder that this is what happens 
when you mess with the empire. People would pass by heaping shame, ridicule, mocking, even spitting on these criminals at eye level with you. It's no wonder that we find our first thief saying what we typically say in our deepest pain. Jesus, get me out of here. Jesus, fix this issue. Jesus, I will believe you are who you say you are if you get me down from this cross, if you get me out of this mess. We are just trying to make sense of the things that have happened to us that we know should not be this way. Author Ronald Roy has put it this way. It is no easy task to walk this earth and find peace. Inside of us, it would seem something is at odds with the very rhythm of things, and we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. Put more simply, there is within us a fundamental disease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, and the deep recesses of the soul. There's a restlessness, a restlessness, a dis-ease, Rollheiser says, that we are trying our best to make sense of life. We're trying to make sense of the fog of experience, of the pain of the cross we may find ourselves in today. As the author Christina Groff put it, which is a great last name, by the way, (laughs) Christina Groff said in her book that we all thirst for wholeness. We thirst for wholeness, for things to be set right. And this morning, we usually have an idea in our mind how that should happen. We have an idea of how things should get fixed, how things should happen. How how do we fix the restlessness and the marrow of our bones? This is what we find this thief had in mind. He basically says, Jesus, I will believe you are God. I will believe you are who you say you are if you get me out of this mess I'm in. And I know some of you, that's why you struggle to believe in Christianity or the reason why you don't believe, something happened. There is a restlessness. There was was an issue. There is an issue. You've been crying out to God and you've been saying, fix this, end this, make this better. Get me down from this cross. I remember a few years back that Rachel and I met a girl in her early 20s while we were flying cross country from Detroit to Denver. And very early, once we'd taken our seats, uh, we had the obligatory question that we said to one another, oh, and what do you do for a living? And, and I shared with her that I was a Presbyterian pastor. And I've only found usually two responses when I share with people that I'm a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, the first response is after I say I'm a Presbyterian pastor, you can tell that they are really trying to bridge the gap. Uh, you, can, you can tell that they have no religious affiliation at all, but they're trying. They really are trying. And so I'll say, oh, I am a Presbyterian pastor and there will be a long pause longer than it needs to be because they're searching for what do I possibly say? And then they will respond with fascinating. Good for you. I think my great uncle was a Presbyterian. At which point their headphones go on, which is the nonverbal way of saying we're done talking. The second person that I encounter when I bring up that I'm a Presbyterian pastor. Whatever I was planning to do on that flight is done. Whatever book I had brought to read, I won't read it. Whatever task I needed to complete wasn't going to happen because I was going to spend the next full duration of that flight engaging in conversation with this person. Jessica was that way. 
We backed up from the gate in Detroit and we talked about life till we got off our plane in Denver. And as we were sharing, Jessica shared the story and her life and the cross that she felt like she was on. You see, she had lost her dad to cancer in her teens. She grew up in the church, but was really struggling to understand why would God allow this to happen? Why would God have me experience this deep pain in my life? And to be honest, I can't even imagine what she has gone through, the restlessness that she has experienced. But this is what the first thief was saying. This is what Jessica was saying. God, God, if you are there, if you hear me at all, show me, fix this, end this, get me out of this. If we're honest this morning, we've all said that at some point. You may be saying it right now. God, I will know you are there. I will know you are real if you get me down from this cross. I remember when I was in my mid-20s, I was so wise. Um, I, had, I was so put together. I had so many great views on life uh, at, at that age. And I remember I was really struggling. I had recently become single. I would, there was a relationship that I was in that I thought it was going somewhere, and then only to find out that she had dumped me, and I was deeply discouraged. And I was getting to this place in my mid-20s of wondering, will I ever get married? Uh, and so humor me for a moment, but it was a doomsday moment for me. It was a doomsday moment. God, get me down from this cross. If you loved me, if you loved me, you would not be allowing this to happen. I'm in seminary for you. I know it's a horrible response for me. In spite of my rebellion, like this thief, despite my arrogance that I knew the way my life should go in my mid twenties, God gave me a wife I did not deserve. And you may be saying to yourself this morning, you're exactly right, Tyler. You don't deserve her. <laughs> and I know that. Our worry takes over when we, like the thief, believe we know how our life should go. God, God, get me down. Get me down. There was a recent Budweiser ad a couple years ago, and it went like this. For those who dare to write their own story, dot, dot, dot. This bud is for you. Do you dare to write your own story? Well, then you're worthy of a bud in case you're wondering. This is the question for you this morning. Are you the author of your story and God's a character in the story that you are writing or is God the author and you are a character in the story that he is writing? It's clear that the first thief viewed the world this way. He was essentially saying, I have a view the way my life should go. And God, you need to agree with me. God, you need to get me down from here. Is this how you are talking to God? Are you writing your own story? Are you the author? Well, you might get a Budweiser. But if you're the author of your own story, you will always find disappointment. Always. If this is the way you view God, you will never be satisfied. At some point in life, you will find yourself on the cross. You, you will find yourself in a predicament. You will find yourself in the fog of experience. And you will find yourself questioning what you are going through. One writer said it this way. Christianity does not get you away from the pain, but Christianity does get you through the pain, through the pain. The question of all questions this morning is why doesn't God get us down from the crosses we experience? And that is a question that I just cannot answer. 
But one reason I might posture an answer is to remind us, as hard as we try to be, we are not the author of our story. Paul, John Zoll said it this way. We want to be in control, but we are not. Because of this, the heartfelt experience of faith will always entail a kind of personal deconstruction. Rather than some kind of building up, sometimes people ask God to build in them all the things that they think they need in order to face life successfully. He will do no such thing. Why would he turn you into a vessel that has no need for him? Friends, this is the hard place we have to get to. We have to come to the end of our rope to say we have nothing to offer, to say what feels absolutely gut-wrenching to say. What do we struggle to admit? That's our second question. This is the answer from the second thief. What do we struggle to admit? The first thief was super brazen that we find in our passage. Our translation says he railed at Jesus, but that Greek word is blasphemeo, which you can hear the word underneath there. He, he blasphemed Jesus. In fact, in the Greek, uh, it, it literally carried with it this idea of continual ridicule, that he's, he's on the cross continuing to ridicule Jesus. Why won't you get me down? If you are who you say you are, you will get me through this. You will fix this. And the sad reality is that this thief went to his death slandering Jesus. But the second thief had a different response. Listen to him respond to the first thief in verse 40. It says this, but the other thief rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? His response to this thief was essentially this. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? You're a criminal. We, we are criminals. We are here justly by what we have done. We are under condemnation. But it's interesting, several of the commentators pointed this out, and we see this in other gospels, that these men are named as insurrectionists. Insurrectionists. They were freedom fighters. They were fighting and revolting against Rome. And the second thief, he's not saying, listen, we're here justly because we stood up to the Roman Empire. No, he believes that they did, what they did was right and good, fighting for justice. Why does the second thief say he's under condemnation? He's telling the other thief, listen, listen, you don't have a leg to stand on. We, we don't have a leg to stand on. We shouldn't be pleading to Jesus to get us out of this situation. We deserve to be here because of our sins, because we've walked away from God. We deserve to be here. The second thief realized that he was under spiritual condemnation and he deserved to be there on the cross. This is what we struggle with to admit, to say, I deserve to be here because of the things I've done or the things that I've left undone. I deserve to be here because of my arrogance, because of my self-loathing. I've not loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I deserve to be here. That is what we struggle to admit like this thief. He says in verse 41, we are under condemnation justly. This is what we struggle to admit, friends. We live our lives trying to avoid having to make that statement. I read a story about a pitcher named C.C. Sabathia. Uh, he spent most of his career playing for the New York Yankees. If you're a Yankees fan, please do not woot. I know there's some in the room. Most believe that he will make it into the Baseball Hall of Fame one day. One of the contracts that Sabathia signed during his career with the Yankees was for five years, $122 million. I don't know about you, but I think I can make that work. But in this article, Sabathia had to admit something about himself that he struggled to admit. In 2015, after the Yankees 
had clinched a playoff berth, Sabathia checked himself into rehab. He was finally willing to admit that he was an alcoholic. Ryan Hockensmith wrote an article chronicling CeCe's story of addiction alongside his own story and journey with addiction. And what I found fascinating about this article is the ability the addict has of rationalizing their decisions. This is what he says in the article. Sabathia and I both had success on paper, jobs, marriage, kids, no lengthy prison sentences hanging over our heads, but felt tortured internally because we knew how bad it was. So we sought help at rehab, even if the backs of our baseball cards still looked okay to the casual observer. At my treatment facility, I'll never forget, there was a guy who'd gotten blackout drunk and tried driving off with an Amtrak train before he got arrested. Well, I never robbed the train, I thought. Maybe I don't belong here. But with the way things were going, was I really confident saying that stealing an Amtrak was completely out of the realm of possibilities? I decided maybe I should stay. Do you hear what Hawkinsmith is saying? He's, he's sitting there in rehab, despite the obviousness of his condition, despite the evidence of the issue. How easy is it for us to all say, well, I didn't black out and rob an Amtrak. Maybe I shouldn't be here. It's so easy for us to examine the evidence and say to ourselves, that other person, they have the issue. The great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, the modern human must first become aware that something is dreadfully wrong before any hope is to be had. The first thief tells us, God, God, get me out of this mess. We have to be willing to say like this thief, we, yes, we have made a mess of things. This is what we struggle to admit. Something is dreadfully wrong and we have made a mess of things. This is the story of our lives. But the second thief was able to admit what we spend our whole lives trying to avoid. The predicament we are in cannot be solved in our own strength. This is what is so beautiful about Alcoholics Anonymous. The first step is admitting that there is an issue and that we need rescue from ourselves. Friends, this morning, are you willing to admit that you're in need of rescue? That's what this thief does. He cries out, in verse 42 to Jesus, this is what he says. And the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's willing to admit for the first time that he deserves condemnation for how he has lived his life. And it tells us in this same act in verse 40 that he understands that Jesus should not be here. It says in verse 41, we deserve to be here, but this man, why is he here? He's done nothing wrong. Why is Jesus here? Why is Jesus on the cross? If he's done nothing wrong, he's there because he has something to offer those willing to admit their need. What is truly offered? That's our third question. What is truly offered? And what we learn from our passage is there are two things Jesus offers us and anyone who's willing to admit their need this morning. The first is a promise. The second, he cries out for Jesus and he receives the promise that Jesus offers it in verse 43. It says this. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus offers first this glorious promise, no matter what has happened, no matter what predicaments you may find yourself in, no matter the predicaments you've gotten yourself in, there's a promise. Jesus tells us that he will be with you no matter what you face. It tells us there's a paradise for you. 
There's a paradise. Now, the commentators agree that the emphasis of this passage is not there's a paradise, but the emphasis of this passage is that he will be with you. No matter the cross you find yourself on, no matter the pain of experience you're in right now, the fog that you're trying to see through, it says he will be with you. That's the promise. You are not alone, no matter what you are facing. When you cry out to him and you say, I am out of strength, that's when Jesus does his best work. Jesus tells us he has the strength to see us through. It may not be the outcome that we desired. It may not have been what we had hoped for, but Jesus promised us he will never leave us alone, that he will be near. This is the great point of uh, the poet, Oliver Wendell Holmes. He put it in his poem, O Love Divine. It says this, on thee we cast our burdening woe, O love divine forever dear, content to suffer while we know, living or dying, thou art near. Friends, he's near. He's near this morning to the lonely and brokenhearted. He's near this morning to those in the fog of experience. He's near this morning to whatever cross you're saying, God, get me down, get me down. As David's all put it, Christianity does not get us away from the pain, but Christianity does get us through the pain, through the pain. Jesus offers us and you that promise today. However isolated you feel this morning, whatever cross you are facing, those who like Kierkegaard are willing to admit that something is dreadfully wrong. Jesus can begin to do his best work in your life, in your life. But, but we have to let go of the steering wheel. Oh, we have to get out of the driver's seat. We have to hand over the keys and allow him to be the author of our story. We have to say like this, thief, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. Friends, Jesus wants you to know this morning that there's an offer of promise for anyone who wants it, that he will be with you. That's his heart for you. In John 17, there, there's this prayer. Jesus prayed to God and it said, Father, I want them to be with me where I am. He prays in verse 23 of John 17, God, may they see the love that you have for them and how you have loved me. It's a powerful prayer. It's Christ's heart for you. But the question in this morning is how can Jesus offer us this promise that he'll be with us no matter what we face, no matter the crosses before us? How can he promise us that if we're willing to admit like this thief that we are under condemnation? How can Jesus offer us this glorious promise? You will be with me in paradise, no matter what you face. You are never alone. How can he offer us that promise if we're finally willing to admit that something is dreadfully wrong? Well, that's the second thing Jesus offers. He offers a declaration. It says this in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus declares, Father, I want them to know that you have loved them because I'm asking you to forgive them. I'm taking their place. I'm the innocent one who is dying in the place of the condemned. I'm dying for them so that they would know how much you love them so that they know that I have buried their condemnation with me in the grave. Do you see that? Jesus is telling us that he is taking our condemnation we deserve so that when the father looks at you and me, he sees the righteous life of Jesus in our place. This is the offer of declaration. Father, Father, forgive them. Father, treat them as if they had lived my life because I will die the death they deserve, taking their condemnation with me to the grave. Do you see what Jesus is doing 
even in his darkest hour? Do you see what Jesus is doing in his darkest season of pain? In his darkest season, his darkest cross, he stays. It's what John Calvin calls the marvelous exchange. What we could not accomplish for ourselves, Jesus has accomplished for us. This is what Calvin writes. In short, from the time when Jesus took on human form, he began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us. Many of you may have read the story at some point of Moby Dick, and if you haven't, I hate to be the one today of all days to just to spoil the ending uh, for you. And I hate to do this, and I really am sorry uh, to ruin the very last piece of the book, but I will say the book was published in 1851. It's been around for a little bit. The character Ahab knows he's about to die, and he is just filled with rage and anger. And Ahab uses his last dying breath to curse the whale Moby Dick in his fate. And Ahab's classic line ends this way. I grapple with thee from hell's heart. I stab at thee for hate's sake. I spit my last breath at thee. It's a powerful line. You can feel it. It's one of the classic lines of the book. Ahab is being pulled down to hell, and with his very last breath, he is raging with hatred. From hell's heart, I stab at thee, and then he dies. But friends, don't you see Jesus Christ as he's being pulled down to hell? As he he is being pulled down, don't you see he cries out, from hell's heart, I forgive thee. From hell's heart, I forgive thee. With Ahab's last breath, he cursed, but with Jesus' last breath, he longed for you to know his amazing grace and love for you. Don't you see Jesus in his darkest hour, in his darkest pain, did not cry out for your condemnation. He cried out for your forgiveness. It's so hard for us to believe this, but if we got this, we could face any circumstance, any situation that came our way. We would know we didn't deserve this offer, this declaration. We didn't deserve such grace. But Jesus offers this declaration. Father, Father, forgive them. This will enable you to forgive those who've slandered you behind your back. This will enable you to work at your job, not to earn a great name of approval and admiration, but to work for the betterment of others because you have the approval and admiration of the only one you truly need. That he cried out, Father, forgive them in his last breath. Whatever we're facing, we know that God will get us through because of what Jesus has done, what he, what he did on the cross for his great love for you. Do you see that? Now, I know some are saying, yes, Tyler, I see that. Thank you for reminding me of that this morning. But there are others, you are still questioning. You are saying, Tyler, you don't know what I've done. But Tyler, you don't know the things that I have said to God in those moments where I was hanging on the cross. You don't know the things I said when things didn't go my way. But Tyler, you don't know what is happening in the dark alleyways of my soul. Jesus tells us this offer of decoration is for anyone willing to admit it and what he has accomplished, even if you are admitting it for the first time this morning. Why do I say that? It's interesting that what we learned from the second thief is that he wasn't pro Jesus the whole time he was on this cross. In fact, when we read Matthew's gospel, this is what we read about these two thieves and the robbers who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Up until about 15 minutes ago, or five minutes ago, we don't really know, but before our scene in Luke, the second thief was in full agreement with the first thief. If you are God, if you are there, if you're real, get me down from this cross. Get me out of this. But in five minutes, something changed. He saw what was truly offered. 
He saw what Jesus was actually doing on that cross for him. He saw, as Calvin put it, the marvelous exchange. Have you said this? Have you received what Jesus is truly offering you today? His grace, his love, his goodness, that he will take your condemnation to the grave. It was never about who was good and bad. It was never about the good thief and the bad thief. There was only one who changed his scolding to surrender in five minutes. At his final breath, this one thief cried out, Jesus, I need you. I need you. Joseph Hart put it in his hymn, Come Ye Sinners This Way. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. All the fitness that he requireth, all that God asks of you today is just to simply feel your need for him. Will you let him forgive you? Will you let Jesus take your condemnation? Will you let him be the author of your story? He invites you to see this Sunday that even from hell's heart, even from hell's heart, he has loved thee and he longs for you to be with him in paradise. The only question left this morning is will you let him love you? I hope and pray that you will. Let's pray. Our Father, we see the extravagant love and grace in this encounter. The glorious exchange for all who are willing to admit their need this morning. Allow us to see the depths that Jesus would go to give us his life in our place. That from hell's heart, from hell's heart, he loved thee. Allow that declaration to take root in our lives, in the marrow of our bones, so that we could be that kind of forgiving and gracious people in a broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.